Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning, we have with us Dr. Brad Elliott Stone. Thank you for being here, Brad. Thanks for the invite. Glad to be here. Brad, uh, I'm coming to, to with here to, from California. You're also in California? California, yes. Mm -hmm. Los Angeles? Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles, uh, unincorporated Los Angeles, as they historically Unincorporated, say. really. Um, so the move in the 70s to become Westchester, California failed. And so we're still Los Angeles, although outside of the ocean line, uh, we're not actually contiguous to, let's say, downtown L.A. at all. Yes, that's right. Um, I, I, I oftentimes call it Lost Angeles. <laughs> yes. um, but yes, I've been to Westchester many times. And is this your office that you're joining us from? It is, uh, thanks to a wonderful um, set of power company uh, efforts today. We were told um, by the power company that there would be intermittent power outages at home today. And so I said, well, I better come into my office and have a better chance of not having us cut sense. out with a power outage. So. There you go. Well, it uh, it's a very nice office, it's a spacious office, and there's lots of books, which is immediately what I notice. Um, got that nice natural light. Um, and gosh, it looks like you have hundreds of books there, at least, yeah. maybe a thousand. Well, I don't yeah. know. Well, as I always joke, these are my working books. I actually have more books downstairs, a lot of books at home. Mm -hmm. um, when I became associate dean at the beginning of this academic year, so around May 2021, I asked them to bring in as many bookshelf cases as they could. They couldn't actually drill into the walls to put up my kind of wall shelves that I have downstairs. And so I have these kind of metal bookcases, and then there weren't enough uh, to move up here. And I needed to keep room for my um, electronic piano behind me. And so I said, well, let me take the books I kind of work with. And you have the piano there. Them up. You have yeah. the piano in your office. Oh, um, wow. And so cool. I, since one big shift uh, from. You, you might be the first associate dean that's ever had a piano in the office. Yeah, it has headphones and everything. So I can. Kind of practice oh, okay. without okay, interrupting everybody. Although every once in a while, people um, try to listen in. <laughs> you got one of those fancy ones with the headphones. Yeah. Well, I alas bring in an acoustic one. I think would be overkill. <laughs> um, so I decided. Well, if I'm going to be in here um, during kind of standard business hours, mm -hmm. and I'm used to kind of practicing in the early afternoon mm -hmm. uh, in my usual life. And so I said, well, if, I'm not, <laughs> if I don't have a, a meeting, I can just keep practicing. Right. Now, when you say your usual life, let's say, okay, we got to set the stage here. You are the first administrator that we've had on here. <laughs> and uh, so uh, when you say your normal life, you mean... You, are you still full professor? I don't understand how yes. that works. Okay, so you're still full professor of philosophy, right? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, and so when I say normal life, I usually mean the life of the philosophy professor 
mm-hmm. versus the uh, um, administrator. And so right. my wife gets to <laughs> look at me funny every time I lament, you know, coming in and having to be in an office all day uh, compared you yeah. know, to most What's... people in the world. Right. What's okay. So that's it. That's you have now normal business off office hours. That's yes. just a part of what it is to be associate Dean. It is. So mm-hmm. of course there are meetings, things I'm not always in this room, but you know, kind of a nine to five, which although the life of the academic mm-hmm. is much longer than nine to five, at least it's not in one place. And so you can be at home writing, mm-hmm. for example, or grading uh, essays and things like that, mm-hmm. or you're in some other building teaching classes, you're interacting with students, you're getting a cup of coffee with students, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas this job is more, oh, here's an email, and there's a implication that that email should be answered sooner than later, compared to the rule I have for my students, which says, well, if you send me an email, I have um, a whole day to even first read it, let alone then time to deal with it. Uh, and in this position, you, you don't have that kind of freedom because the pieces are moving so quickly mm. that you have to kind of be ready for that email or a phone call or, you know, some event happens on the campus and there's an expected, re- you know, kind of swiftness of response. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're teaching it typically for those who don't know, typically you're in class uh, as a professor one. Well, actually it could be up to three times a week during the year. Yes. Um, I mean, for a specific course, one class, yes. say course. Yeah. Um, so it might be that you come in every day if that's just what the schedule was. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, typically, if you're teaching, what, what's a full-time professor load there? Is it three? three? Yeah. Well, it's a three-three. So, okay. At the moment, we're now what's called two-two-two-three because we've moved to a four-unit uh, curriculum. But you know, on a for the majority of my career, it's been three. Uh, every semester, kind of two courses that are part of the core curriculum that every student takes, and then either an upper division course for philosophy majors or a graduate course for philosophy graduate students. And so sometimes since I really don't like teaching back to back, I would teach a three time a week class and a two time a week class. So I'd still be coming in every day. Oh, uh, but then kind of really have all my energy for yeah the one class, uh, particularly right. if they're the same class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always find it weird to teach material and then the next hour kind of teach it again. It, it feels weird. None of the jokes yes. work. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. You start totally. remembering things said by the other class. Uh-huh. You have to. So the second class gets usually a richer class in a certain sense. But then I always feel sorry for the people who had me first because <laughs> I'm taking the insights from that hour and using it in the second hour. So yeah. I usually actually break those apart so that I'm not doing it. And since they're in different days, yeah, they're at different paces and it's clearer to keep things straight. 
what's the energy differential uh, that in terms of output for you between these required undergraduate courses, which first of all, yay for required philosophy undergraduate yes. courses. Yes. Um, uh, between that and teaching a major course or a graduate course. Well, I would say it's the same energy. It just gets distributed differently. So I love teaching freshmen just because they are kind of doe-eyed and mm -hmm. somewhat innocent. I, yeah. I, you know, that's becoming harder and harder to say uh, by the year. <laughs> but you go in with freshmen and you can really be excited about asking big questions and thinking through big ideas right. and inviting them to a conversation they've never had before. Mm -hmm. about these kind of ultimate questions. And so a lot of it is energy in the sense of getting them excited. When you're teaching majors, they're already excited about doing philosophy. So you can really oh. tune into the excitement of the figure or the texture uh, dealing with in the class. And mm -hmm. so you already have the students' buy-in in a certain way. And now the energy is, look how great this idea is that this philosopher had. Um, so the last mm. um, course I had for majors was a course on Michel Foucault. And Foucault, of course, is a fascinating person and lived through a, a, a France that was going through um, a lot of unrest, upheaval. Students could kind of see themselves um, in 1968 France. And how does a philosopher respond? And what kind of questions did Foucault ask in such a time? And they seem counterintuitive to what everyone else was doing at the time. But I think that's part of the beauty of philosophy is that we uh, ask questions that no one else is thinking to ask. And so I can spend my energy being excited about how Foucault did it. In the graduate courses, the excitement is more now, how do you take these ideas and become a young scholar? Mm. Uh, there's a little of that in the majors, but definitely by the time you're a graduate student, I always teach graduate courses from the point of view of you're going on. You now think you have something to say. Now, how do you formulate it? How do you try to take your idea and run as far as you can with it? And of course, as you know, once you start running with an idea, new questions come up and new ideas form. And you just throw away that first batch of writing you did and now you have something better to say and so the energy there is telling them to keep pushing and not to be afraid because some graduate students are kind of afraid of where their ideas are taking them because they're too busy thinking about the market and things like that and the answer is yeah. no go where the ideas are taking you oh i like that yeah so that, if, if someone missed what you said about the market that's a kind of a technical term for <laughs> scholars, the market. You don't mean like the grocery store yeah. or the, the, the Brea mall. <laughs> um, trying to think um, of a mall that's closer to LA. Yeah. Uh, uh, I guess the Grove. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I've only been to the Grove once. I wasn't really that yeah. impressed. Uh not that impressed with Bram Mall either, just FYI. But they did they did have a bookstore. They did yes. they just lost the bookstore. I about to say back in the golden age of bookstores that we no longer have. Yeah, well, they just lost this bookstore just a few months ago, and I, I really torn up about it. 
they had a great bookstore there. It was a used bookstore. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, you, your uh, comment about the market and how that, what do you mean by that? Well, for our graduate students, um, our philosophy program is a master's program. And so it's uh, what we call pre-PhD master's mm-hmm. program. Um, MA programs kind of divide into two. Some are what we call post-baccalaureate. Is, oh, you have your undergraduate. Now here's some more education. Uh, our master's approaches things as a pre-PhD, which okay. means that yeah. you are on your way to um, PhD programs. How do we make sure you're ready? How do you have the skills to be successful in the PhD world? Now, of course, there's so few slots in PhD programs that it does build a kind of competitive market uh, where programs get to pick who comes. And so for grad students, the market can mean the PhD programs. In the PhD level, the market usually means the job market. And now it's the market in the more usual sense of, once again, you having to peddle your wares and be hired by institutions. And of course, in philosophy, there are not, or any field really, there are not as enough jobs for everyone who has a doctorate degree. So mm-hmm. the market becomes the peddling of oneself And I'm trying to convince graduate students to think less about that and more about what we could call the profession. Mm. And you got to hear profess in there, not just Mm -hmm. in the sense of being a professor, but in the sense of professing that we have something to say, things we want to share, ideas uh, for the world. And I think we're in a current moment where students think less, in the graduate level at least, they think less about their own ideas, and they're so worried Mm. about whether they're going to get a job that they really don't do philosophy. Oh, wow. In the the way we we sell to our freshmen. That's huge, what you just said. Right. That's huge, what you just said. So when we teach um, freshmen philosophy, it's all about love of wisdom and seeking big questions. And that sounds true and it's true even for people in graduate school but sometimes this worry about jobs mm-hmm. makes them forget that that's the calling of philosophy um, my wife who was my fiance at the time anytime i expressed any nervousness about jobs she reminded me two things one she said you can be a philosopher even if you worked at a gas station that dates me <laughs> back when people worked at gas stations <laughs> uh, and pumped gas. You could be a philosopher pumping gas. Um, cool. and that is, that is an old school comment right there. That is an old school concept. And also, you know, I love you no matter what. Uh, that helped uh, <laughs> uh-huh. with that. But I try to convince students, just be yourself, have good ideas, go where they take you. If they're any good, people will be interested. But we have to start thinking about education writ large, independently right. of the economic question. I, I say that knowing it sounds too idealistic, but um, the goal of education is education to be built. Certainly, <laughs> um, it sounds pure to me. That's yeah. To me, it sounds like there's a purity to what you're saying. Um, well, I really like, I, I, I triple underlined profess in profession. That's, a, that's an interesting. Uh, I don't think I'd ever had that thought before. Yeah. Professing 
and a profession and and being a professor is a classic profession yes um this uh strikes well how, how do your students respond to this challenge to take and i i'd be interested in how do you do that how do you take the fear of the market or the worry of of getting a job and put it to one side when it seems like it's uh clouding maybe your vision of the material itself like the 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 um the, you called it the calling of philosophy mm -hmm. that's an, another interesting word yeah. that you used was the calling i'd love it's to hear what yeah. you say see but what, what do you mean by the calling of philosophy well i mean we could of course almost like a christian term it is well for me it is of course um but yeah, there's sure. a i mean to keep the wordplay going i mean uh, the word vocation literally means okay yes called. oh yeah. and so preachers right. have vocations they were called to preach i wish you know i, I see my being a professor similarly I, I think i'm called to it uh i don't think the um the younger people now to today say uh, the industry that mm -hmm. people would even use the word industry to describe higher education, you know, just bothers me. No, the, the profession, yeah. the academy, the, um, the professorate. So mm -hmm. we need to return, I think, in higher education to a sense of calling and that we are here for those who have received such a calling. Mm. And my students will quickly remind me that that does sound idealistic, but it's almost more that it's, old-fashioned. I, I don't think it's non-realistic. I think it's old-fashioned. It's harder and harder for people to now yeah. see education as a leisure activity. You know, philosophy requires leisure. Yes. It's hard for people to see going to college as a place where one finds oneself and where one grows and lives in a land of ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. your parents using the phrase return of an, on investment uh, <laughs> just cringeworthy as a term and of course my students remind me that my entire college education cost me less than one semester of theirs wow. and so they do have real worries but the problem with that was that because you had scholarships or was that just because the the I uh, did have scholarships, but the the actual retail price, as it were, of the education was still less than a semester. Wow, uh, really? Uh, now, of course, this was early 90s in Kentucky. Kentucky. Um, I grew up in Kentucky. All right. So you were well. <laughs> yes. So, so um, you're you're in Los words. Angeles, but you grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in Kentucky. I grew up <laughs> In rural Kentucky, no. Oh wow! Um, and so I was one of a handful of. No people. wonder you're old-fashioned. Yeah, well, I would say sensible. There you uh, go. But some of it is sensible. I was just one of the few people from my high school class who went to college. Several of them have mm -hmm. gone since, just okay. as the world has made everyone have to go to college. Right. But there was a time, even into the early '90s where you didn't have to go to college. And right. so when you went once to college, upon a time, it really was more idealistic. You, you could 
practically almost fell out as my uncle would joke, you know, some people graduate cum laude, others graduate oh lordy. And <laughs> they, but you still had a college degree and that was sufficiently differentiating between you and other people. So most of the people I went to college with, I went to a Baptist college in Kentucky, Georgetown College, marvelous Baptist college. I've heard of it. And had great instruction there. But everyone there was either going to become a school teacher, a preacher, a couple were going to be lawyers. Some knew they might become professors. Uh, I didn't go to college to become a professor in the university sense, but to be a high school teacher. Really? And that's why you went to college. That's why I went to college. If it had not been for that, and really? the fact that I hated uh, tobacco gum on my hands. <laughs> um, uh -huh. I would have just stayed on the farm. And that was an option back then. Okay. Um, or, you know, you still had factories and people would work uh -huh. uh, in manufacture. Uh, my father had his entire career on the farm and in a hydraulic pump factory um, wow. and had a good middle class life in what in the Midwest we consider a good middle-class life. Um, what I see now is a lot of students paying ridiculous prices mm -hmm. uh, who have no inclination to live a life that would need kind of an academic focus. And they come almost begrudgingly to school and they're going to rack up all this debt. And if most of the jobs they're going to have didn't require that degree. So I know I'm from an older time when people didn't have to go to college for most careers out there. Yeah. And so that meant the people who were in college really were there to be there. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a small town and I was fascinated when I got to Georgetown, which is not a big town at all, uh, but it's outside of Lexington. And University of Kentucky is right there. Transylvania University is there. Not too far from Center College. Those are kind of your big. How far out of uh, Lexington is it? Lexington is about a 30-minute drive. Okay. But and 30 minutes in Kentucky uh, versus the 30 minutes out here in California. So this good, is like 30 miles away. Good distinction. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> I drive 30 miles to go. You know, like So it's not a couple blocks away, in other words. Right. Um, but <laughs> what was nice is you had brilliant kids, mostly from Kentucky, but some from across the country and a couple of people who were international at the time, who really were smart. And I really was pressed, you know, I was kind of a big fish in a little pond. And then you find yourself in the ocean and you go to professors' houses, going back to the notion of books, and they have books everywhere <laughs> in their house, let alone in their office. And I decided, I want that life. Oh, yeah. I want the now, how was this a freshman? Did you have yeah, this my right freshman away? Year, we had professors who lived near campus and they would invite you to their homes. And so you saw their professorial life. And yes. I said, I want that life. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a professor. The universe, the, the college was small enough that once I told a couple of people I wanted that, they knew that. And so then my professor started pushing me about that. Well, that's an okay paper, 
But if you want to be a professor down the road, you need to think this way, not that way. You need to read these books. They're not for a class that we have, not but these class. are the books you will need for literacy to then go to grad school. You know, and so I had a lot of mentoring. Wow. Uh, and some of that was yeah, that whole thing about not school. for a class. That's a big thing for an undergrad. Yeah. yeah. Do you do and that for your undergrads of, here in, in L.A.? I try to. There's a lot of things that get in the way. Uh, it's very hard to have students yeah. at your home just because travel and distances do from live, where I live. Do you live to close to the campus at all? I do not. I live about 20 minutes away. I mean, it's close in my yeah. Kentucky sense. It's like five miles away. But it's, to get students it, over there is yeah. kind of a, a chore. It is, and yeah. of course, things are just different now. There's a nervousness about bringing students to your home really? or having, okay. you know, these kinds of um, personal mentoring relationships that so exceed the boundaries of the campus uh -huh. in the same way. Because of litigious, the t litigious nature of our context? I suspect would you, so. Would you say? Okay. I suspect so. And of course, litigious or is it just contemporary a, American society, let alone higher education, makes yeah. it really difficult for people to do some of the things, even in administration, that one would want to do. But, you know, the, at my institution, we have you know, like a dozen university attorneys full time, plus a whole cadre of others on retainer. And there's literally on any given day, um, dozens of lawsuits. Uh, from grades to um, interactions on campus, you know, students even suing each other, you know, and does the university get involved in some of those cases? You're uh, depressing me. Really tricky. Oh my gosh. Uh, compared to when Wait. I was in college. Okay, so this, this is, I got to stop you here. Hold on a sec. Okay, now going back to the professors and homes and stuff, you had that right away in, in, in college and you were able to see what you call the professorial life. I totally relate to that because I had a mentor in high school who was a philosophy professor at Denver seminary. His name was Gordon R. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And he would invite us over to his home once a week when I was a senior. And I saw for myself, you know, I don't think I was able to take it in um, looking back on it. I don't think I ever fully took it in what this is philosophy. I don't think I understood it totally, but I was able to see it and have those memories of all these books lining the people don't understand lining the hallways, like on the floor, like it would be considered inappropriate in a normal home, but it was totally fine. But for some reason you walked in and you were like, well, of course, he's going to put it on the floor. Where else is he going to put it? But most of them were in, you know, bookshelves and stuff. But you could just tell they were just stacked up and they were used. And and then he had another office on campus that also had books that yes. were used. They weren't decorative. It wasn't like the encyclopedias that people used to buy. You remember those, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, they, they had the encyclopedias. I mean, I read them, but most people, didn't. <laughs> most people didn't. And, and they were like just sitting there and they were pretty to look at, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I really actually liked looking at them, but, 
but um my gosh i wonder what whatever happened to those dang things i don't, I don't even know but anyway um now that's that's kind of lost that that purity of what you're talking about going to college getting lost in ideas um you you mentioned that going to a professor's house to see the professorial life to see these books to see the the type of schedule that would allow for i mean gordon had the type of schedule that would allow for having two seniors in his home i think on a tuesday i i can't remember when we were i mean it was yeah. but it was he wasn't he wasn't booked with meetings and he had that kind of of time to spend with these books and there was not a nervousness like you're talking about i do not remember right. that at all of course it might have been that he was a, a he went to the church that was in our neighborhood but i think even then nowadays there would be that nervousness but yes he he um he was a local as we call him uh, two blocks away or three blocks away from the home I grew up in was a church. It was a Baptist church and he was a member there. Yes. And so that's the contact. That's why we had the contact that we had. I didn't go to that church, but my friend did Robbie blanks. But um, do you lament that? That was your experience and that's not how the students there experience college. Is that a lament it's, for you? It's it is a lament for me, uh, but I'm also aware that we're just in a different world. That, mm -hmm. that that's some of it. You know, I remind students that I went to college, and it wasn't until my junior year that we had the internet in any <laughs> common standard way. Uh, I first. So got you, got, you got letters. You wrote letters. We wrote these letters. Professors? We had actual you know card catalogs you go to the library oh, even and better. you would either say i need this book and you're looking through the cards to find where it is in the shelves but the beautiful thing there is you know you'd look up something the card catalog and then you'd go to the stacks and you'd realize there's the book to the left or to the right of it there's the book on the shelf above it the book on the shelf below it or sometimes you just go to the library and just peruse down an aisle and see what just grabs your attention. It could be on anything, you know. And I Brow tried to convince my students. We still have the stacks at uh, my institution. And sure. we have a marvelous library. And I just wonder how many students have wandered through those stacks. Um, now everyone just looks things online. Mm -hmm. And they don't find anything they weren't already looking for. Right. And so very different going, experience. You know, there's, there's no uh, there's yeah. no there. That's a very different experience because there's no um, sense of surprise. Right. Like, I, I remember loving the stacks because I was always surprised. Yes. In a, and it was great. It was it was like, oh, I would have never looked that book up. Mm -hmm. and i'm going to take a look at it you look at the table of contents you look at um maybe dip into a chapter maybe uh if it's got 
some blurbs on it, but the older ones didn't have blurbs on them. You just had to get into the book. You know, you didn't read what somebody else said about the book (laughs) before you read it. You just read it. You, you thought about it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Now there's all sorts of blurbs and you have to wade through all these blurbs, reading what everybody else thinks about the book before you look at it yourself. And then sometimes that might not even, that means you're doing that instead of looking at it for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a pure, that, that is the, the idea that I had mm-hmm. when I was young of what college meant. So you obviously like books, Brad. Oh, yes. How did you like, how did you get into books? You said you grew up on a farm. You mentioned tobacco. Yes, Um, I grew up on a farm. Tobacco was the cash crop of Kentucky at the time. Uh, When I say that to students now, they look at me weird and I'm like, that's right. Your, you know, relatives is emphysema paid for my school clothes. (laughs) Uh, But the, did you smoke? But on the other hand, did you chew? I do not chew. I do smoke, but I do not chew. Um, Even though there was this kid (laughs) who lived next door to my grandfather. Uh, My grandfather had a a farm as well near where I grew up. So my brother and I would ride our bicycles and stuff to my grandfather's place all the time. And in the summer, you know, you're working on the farm. That was your kind of summer task. Was that by choice or was that? No, it was not by choice. (laughs) (laughs) If summer's here, you're not in school, you work. And we would pick rocks out of the field or strip tobacco, uh, shell peas, you know, the, the farm life. The, now, the good news there, of course, was those peas you shelled were going to be the peas you ate. Um, you know, the potatoes you were digging up would be the potatoes you ate. Um, you know, wow. you actually had a real re- connection. And you knew that while you were doing it? You, you knew that there was a connection between you doing this and it showing up in your belly at some point. Oh, yes. Okay. Because, that's a very know, interesting, uh, that's a, I think that's a valuable thing for a kid. How old were you? Yeah. Well, from infancy, I <laughs> lived on the farm till I left for college. Um, and then summers back, you know, a couple you, of times. You were an infant working in the summers? Well, in the sense of when you're a little kid, there were jobs that were helpful for little kids to do. So when it's time to plant tobacco, uh, a kid could take the peg, as we'd call it, which is kind of the wooden stake that you'd hit the ground with after you've tilled to make the hole. And then you put the slip, the tobacco slip into the hole. And then the other kid would have like a little water can and put some water in the hole. And then you'd bunch it up and then you'd plant the row that way now inside the bigger field you'd have a tractor and you actually have a slip device that will do that for you but on the edges and where the machine messed up you'd have to go in and manually peg the tobacco wow um and so pegging was a job that like a kid would do um when it was time for uh stripping tobacco you could always pull the leaves off the stalk um you know and some of that you know we didn't have to lift the you know uh, stalks up into the rafters of the barn for drying or anything too little for that but there were ample jobs picking rocks after you till the ground going how many rocks my grandfather you know how many rocks uh, can you get and i was always a competitive kid and i always wanted to pick more rocks than my brother and so he got a lot of free labor (laughs) out of my competitiveness but at the same time you know even using the word labor is a weird term 
when that literally became the things that you needed for life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I grew up in a world where you would still go to the country store and you would get groceries uh, and set them down, as we would say, um, and they would keep a tab. And then when the tobacco oh. check came, you would wow. go and pay off everyone. And that's when you would buy your new school clothes. That's when you would uh, pay off the country store. So if you ran a country wow. store at that time, you would go months providing and just oh know, you know people were good for it as you knew their families. And you would not, you wouldn't want the shame of having ran up a big tab and then not paid it. Wow. Um, and so you would go. Um, and so this rural life was the staple of what we were doing. Now, how that gets to a professor's life my brother and I both loved books and my parents invested in books, uh, just children's books, you know, um, okay. both my parents were high school graduates, kind of that first generation of black people to be high school graduates right after uh, integration. Um, and they really wanted my brother and I to be good at school and things. And so we always had books as a kid. And then one the way you say friend, the way you say that though you say high school graduate and I I think you mean something by that that is kind of lost on people now. Oh, true, true, true. I think what um, you mean is that the the high school was taken very seriously, and that that was a maybe even a sufficient explanation for why somebody liked books. I, is that how you meant it, or not was it was, I meant it more in the sense of just historical situatedness. Um, my parents they like are books. the first generation in their families to complete high school. Um, yeah, right. So in like rural I mean, America, the, uh, it was not very common for black people to graduate high school because there weren't high schools for them. So if you were really smart, you would get put up as a boarder at some neighbor church in a bigger town that had a high school for black people. Um, but until integration, if you weren't one of them, you know, what W.E.B. Du Bois would call the talented 10th, uh, you really probably weren't going to graduate from high school. But my parents came to age after Brown and Kentucky is one of the first states to really have to deal with the results of the Brown case. And particularly my father's high school, which was one of the special cases about Brown, uh, because a local black high school that people from five different counties would go to burned down. Brown had already passed. So the argument was, well, they can just go to uh, Columbia High School. And everyone said no. And finally, through the work of NAACP, um, and actual implementation of Brown, uh, they still didn't get into Columbia High School. Uh, the county actually built a new high school called Adair County High School, which was just already integrated with its entrance class. What was the My name mother's of case is a little different. What was the name of the high school again? Adair County High School. And so for a while, you had an Adair County High School and a Columbia High School. The Columbia High School was still segregated, and the Adair County High School was the integrated school. Uh, and then, you know, through busing, like most of the way Brown got implemented, students were forced to go to Derrick High School, basically, along with these Black kids. Um, 
And was it a good high school? It was. And of course, it was a good high school in the way that in 19, late 1960s United States, high school was big uh-huh. because it was as far as most people got. Right. So when I look at my father's report cards uh, from high school, which he <laughs> had, you know, and he's taking Latin. Why is oh, wow. a, you know, cool. a school in the middle of tobacco country studying Latin? Well, because that's huh. what you studied in high school. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. That was part of just what you would learn in a higher education. You know, I'm at a place, I grew up in a place where eighth grade graduation was still very big because it really was the highest achievement of most people. Hmm. And even. How, how did your dad do in Latin? He did well. He went to the army. He was drafted to the army upon graduation, uh, served in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, the Vietnam War ends right before his group was going to be shipped to Vietnam. Uh, comes back to America, tried the city life, went to Louisville, Kentucky <laughs> for a couple of years, <laughs> returned to the farm, met my mother at a church event because um, all the black churches of that area would hold, you know, homecomings in the summer and things. And you'd run into people that way. And so then they stayed in Adair County. My mother's from the neighboring county. But one of the things they did is they bought us books and would read to us. So by the time my brother and I were in kindergarten, we were already strong readers. And this made press because, you know, in small town in America, it doesn't take much to make the newspaper. And <laughs> yeah. so there's, you know, super readers. Brad and Jason Stone are reading this book next to, you know, Soap Gibson's award-winning pumpkin for largest pumpkin contest. Um, and this made people become invested in us as readers. And so people who had more access to things would give us things. So my uncle who lived in Louisville, working at GE in Louisville, would come every weekend to visit my grandparents. And he would give us the Louisville Courier Journals of the Week. And of course, my brother and I would first go to the Sunday paper and read the Sunday comics uh, because Ronald Reagan said that was his favorite part of the paper too. And then we would actually read the paper as children. You read the whole paper? We had tried to, you know, and then we'd get these weird questions like who's Manuel so that was Noriega? a big, that would be a big <laughs> deal then for you to be in the paper. Yeah. But yeah, that really was sure. my textbook as John Dewey himself argues. Maybe the best education would be just to sit down with the newspaper every day and read it through as a class and talk about the world through the news. Huh. But we did that. And then we had a family friend who how, old, how old were you when you got into the newspaper? Six, seven. That's pretty young. You know, it was it was and, stuff and to read. It was because of books you got into the they covered you as a like a feature. Well, like a feature yeah, because we would do they would do school news back then because that we didn't have a lot to cover in our small town. And so it was, it was hunting your, photos. It was you and your brother? Fishing photos. Oh, I, I uh, interrupted you saying hunting photos. I'm sorry. Yeah, school photos. Continue. <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. So it's just hunting small photos. Newspaper. Cool. And so every week the, the paper would come to your school because you had school programs. And did you grow up with like guns? That. Sorry. Did you grow up with guns? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, you live in rural Kentucky uh, and you, you don't want, you know, bobcats coming through. Um, so I always explain to students out here in California that. You know, if you grew up on a farm, you have just a different relationship to guns. 
Um, so, Were but you, Guns you... also produced food for us. Okay. And so, you know, someone would shoot a deer or, you know, my mother, anyone who got a rabbit needed to call my mother. She wants the rabbit. So um, you you grew up with as a young kid you were around them and you weren't afraid of them. Not afraid of them. My grandfather gave us a wonderful lesson in gun safety, not in any of the normal senses. So my grandfather had this really good you know shotgun, and uh, he would shoot it one handed. Oh. Uh, he would keep it on the front porch, and we on Sunday afternoons would be on what? the front porch listening to the gospel sings on the radio. And, you know, different singing groups would go to the radio station and sing. Uh, and he would listen on the radio and you'd see something fluttering across the road, these country roads, you know, something fluttering in the woods. He would just in one swoop, you know, move his hand over, grab the gun, bring it forth, shoot. And then Ruth, my grandmother's name, Ruth, I got something. <laughs> you know, sometimes it was uh, something edible. Other times it was something that people think Kentuckians would eat, but we didn't. <laughs> like, so what? Was, like what? Crumbs well, like, you know, people think that people in Kentucky eat possum. I've never eaten possum. Uh, but, you know, a squirrel, um, rabbit, you know, deer, definitely. Um, and he shot it one handed? Yes. A shotgun? So, really? Yeah. yeah. Was it 12 was gauge? Yeah. And, I mean, we were kids. We were playing with shotgun, was he empty shotgun shells. Yeah. Um, was he really strong? Oh, yes. Okay, there. That just that that's no, what I would. That's the piece I was missing. Well, of course, the, he's a he's a farmer, so yeah. But as I say, strong in that old black farmer sense, strengthened by time. Um, you know. But when I was about four or five, my grandfather said, "Okay, you're gonna shoot the shotgun." And we'd had cap guns and stuff as kids, you know. Yeah, people had those kinds of toys, and. Um, was it pump action? Was it double barrel? Was it, it was a double shot? barrel shotgun? Double, okay. yeah, just as um, hammer throw. You didn't uh -huh. have to pump it or anything. Um, and he had me hold this shotgun, and he'd put a you know tin can on one of the fence posts. He's like, you know, I want you to shoot this can off the fence post. And here I am, you know, four or five, and not large at all. What four uh, or five with the twelve gauge? Yeah, and I pull the trigger, oh and if this was a Looney Tune cartoon, you know, the, the, the gun stays in place, and I'm thrown back, you know, like 25, yeah. uh -huh. and then the gun falls. Yeah, and you make, and sure, my, make sure there's no dirt in the muzzle. Yeah, and then my grandfather, you know, picks up the gun, stares at me and says, don't you play with my guns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was the gun safety course. Ah. And then as you got older, you realize, okay, you know how to hold it, and let the uh kickback just dislocate so, your shoulder so yeah. these are these are long guns they're not like handguns yeah. they're not these like are six shooters these aren't right? fancy guns these were practical yep i gotta shoot things guns gotcha you know the horse breaks a leg guns <laughs> you know uh -huh. things like that uh but then like you know my gotcha. grandfather was in military police when he was in the army he's he kept his service pistol you know things like so wow, I grew up with cool. guns. we had our old like my grandparents had extra guns that then my father has uh my great grandfather's hunting gun wow. you know things like that but in that world you had guns um because you ate the result of the gun work and you go back to that theme 
when you're canning food that you're going to eat in the winter, when you shoot the deer meat that you're going to eat in the winter, you have different relationships to these items. Did you feel safe? What's missing is the issue of of self-defense. So Yeah, nobody that I knew talked about guns in terms of self-defense. Did you lock your, did, what, did people lock their doors in that area? No. Okay. Now, to be fair, you know, if you tried to break into the house, my dad would have shot you. <laughs> but, but and probably people know that, right? And people know that. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. And so it's, well, I mean, it's there, the yeah. self, but it's just not articulated. Yeah. The, not you didn't the have surface. the gun for self-defense. You had it for hunting. I got it. it it's one of the items you'd have on a farm. Yeah. You know, I gotcha. I gotcha. It, you know, you have the cow that's just it's sick. for something else, but you could right. deploy it for something like deploy. an axe. Right. But that's not the first thing you think of when you think of an axe is, oh, yeah, I need right. that for self-defense. So well, I always joke. I grew up in a world full of dangerous, sharp objects and non-soft landing surfaces. No kidding. You know, I went to a school that had gravel underneath the swings. <laughs> you know, I'm used to having scrapes and cuts and you go to the school nurse's office and I don't even think they have this product anymore. It was called methylate and they would uh, put it on your wounds and that was it. You know, it was just a rougher, as I tell students, this is why I'm so gritty is that, you know, I grew up in a world that was not overly kind to children. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a world where people had to work. And people worked together because you had to. Mm-hmm. Um, life on the farm also meant barter economies. And so, you know, my grandmother had a lot of chickens and therefore had the eggs that she could trade for someone else's goods. And neighbors had to live together because when it's time to plant tobacco, everyone's in the field. And then you're working each other's fields to get all the tobacco planted. And so that kind of yeah. community life yeah. was what I grew up in. And so then as they had relatives who'd gone off to cities and, would, and knew I loved reading, my brother and I started getting, you know, copies of Architectural Digest. And so here we are, you know, little kids reading Architectural Digest. Just you and your brother and any other siblings? No, just me and my brother. Okay. And this was right at the time when a lot of people were kind of leaving the farms to go to cities. Uh, but we stayed. And there was a family friend who worked for Lindsay Wilson College, which was a Methodist college in Columbia, Kentucky, near where I grew up. I grew up in Sparksville, Kentucky. I went to high school in Columbia, but Lindsay Wilson College. Was it, a, was, it the, was it a black area that you grew up in only? Only black It was area? historically black, but always integrated. I mean, I... My great-great-grandfather was born a slave and settled in the same area after emancipation, somehow bought land. He was a preacher. It built four different churches. Did you say it was your great-great-great-grandfather? One one great? Great, Great-great. Two greats. Great, two greats. Okay. Um, My great-grandfather was also a preacher. And so, but he built these churches. And so you had these kind of black neighborhoods in the South. And of course, recently there's been this argument for blacks to return to the South and to rural life. Um, 
but the there was enough black people i'll put it that way you knew that there was something called black culture but there was no ghettos so there was no world where you were kind of shut off from white people i went to school in an integrated grade school all the way through high school one of the few black people mm-hmm. but we were all from Adair County gotcha. and all of our families go all the way back to before the Civil War. Um, Columbia, Kentucky was a big uh, revolutionary city for Kentucky. I bet. It has a lot of history. So Colonel William Casey, General John Adair is from there. Oh, wow. uh, Mark Twain was actually conceived in my hometown. Really? Uh, he wasn't born there, but he was conceived. We know that. Um, wow. You know, so it was a great Tell me place. the name of the town again. Mark Twain was conceived. Uh, Columbia, Kentucky. Um, in Adair County. Uh, so named for General John Adair. Um, and we grew up in a place where people knew each other. And therefore, when my brother and I became known as readers, people would just gift us books. Uh, college yeah. books, high school books, you know, what was weird is I grew up not reading a lot of kids' books, although I did read a lot of children's books. Right. Um, but these gifts were much more sophisticated than what one would usually get. It's just what huh. people had. And so this family friend worked at Lindsay Wilson, and the library was getting rid of one of their old set of encyclopedias. They were getting a new set of encyclopedias. This is why I started smirking awesome. when you brought up the encyclopedia. Yeah, I knew and you so would appreciate that. I don't know why I knew that, but I knew. We're gifted a 1975 like, set of Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh, yeah. Along with the matching books of the year from like 1962 all the way to like <laughs> 1981. And my brother and I would read these. Um, there's like, what, 26? Uh, there's couple dozen volumes at least right yeah. oh it was it was my first bookshelf that wow, I ever owned, that's cool was to put all these in were you proud of that i set? was yeah and it didn't dawn on me you know till later in my life that oh this was an interesting gift that someone gave to invest in us mm. and that was the encyclopedias i used all the way until i went to college well well yeah it, it's interesting i mean you're how old were you What's your earliest memory of people giving you books? Like how old do you think? Six, seven. That's pretty young. Pretty young. Uh, my mother cleaned houses in town. Mm-hmm. And so they knew we liked stuff. And so they would um, gift us books all the time. We were in the library a lot. Uh, so during the summers, if we weren't on the farm and my mother was going into town to clean houses, and my father was working at the factory at that time okay. and would farm kind of in the evenings. Uh, but we would go into town with my mother and she would drop us off at the library and we would stay at the library for six hours, six, seven hours. Public library. Right? Public library. Yeah. Derrick County Public Library, the Janice Holt Giles Memorial Library, because the great Kentucky writer Janice Holt Giles also from my hometown. Is it still uh, there? Is that library is still there. Still there. And uh, they just added a new expansion for the Adair County uh, Genealogy Society, which I have done a lot of work with when I was living there, because um, I was just in the library all day. Mm-hmm. And my brother and I are quiet and bookish, and so they thought it was fun. And, you know, we would always start with the morning paper, because we'd gotten into the habit mm-hmm. of 
except now we were not a week delayed. We could actually read two days, Louisville Courier Journal. You were current. Yeah. And they just thought it was funny on the one hand, yeah. but then they invested in us. And so I started listening to Berlitz foreign language records uh, that they had at the library. And they had the, you know, phonograph there and I put on my headphones and start, you know, in the corner muttering Italian or German or whatever record I would oh. take that week. And then they would kind of give me challenges. They would say, well, could you, you know, get through all the Berlitz records for Italian? Of course, it was kind of like Traveler's Italian, but I would do yeah. it, you know, because my competitive nature. Um, how, do you remember how to spell Berlitz? How do you spell that? Uh, B-E-R-L-I-T-Z. Okay, got At it right. At the time, it was the very famous set of records to teach you, oh, you're going to take a trip to Italy. So all the sentences are things like, you know, where's the train station, stuff like that. I didn't learn any kind of grammatical things. It was all yeah. rote language learning. And that yeah. was the birth of my love of foreign languages that um, led me to want to be a high school teacher. I was going to teach Spanish and French in high schools. <laughs> um, and it was, I in, it was in the library listening to records. Yeah. And these are records, right? Records. Are, yeah. Um, and then the next thing you know, you're checking those records out and taking them home. Next thing you know, you're checking them out yes checking so, things out of the library. Well, that's kind out of a, library it is kind of an awkward thing to carry home i guess yeah. you want to scratch them oh yeah or yeah. drop them they're not yeah. as they're not as sturdy as books they're, they're not as heavy but to be fair vinyl is making a comeback yes it uh, is and so I'm i think i have a berlitz i think i have the hebrew one. Oh, good i have I a hebrew one i don't know if it's berlitz i'll have to look there was a Hebrew one, and I listened to some of it. Um, and then I started looking at the foreign language books they had at the library. And then next thing you know, I'm at home, and anytime we had little allowance money or my grandfather would give me like $5 or something, we'd go and we'd buy paper, pens, uh, post-it notes. And, you know, my dad comes home from work, and I have put post-it notes on every object of the house with its Spanish equivalent, uh, you know, trying to learn all these Spanish words. The, the, the folks that are giving you these books, were they black people only? No. Or was it no. every, anybody? Uh, that anybody. Knew you? anybody. Anybody. That interact knew you? Now, to be fair, I grew up in a world where black people and white people had to interact with each other. There was no way to separate those worlds. Okay. And well, so what I'm noticing, you had black people giving you things, you had yeah. white people giving you things. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So you're, you're, it seems like you're in a situation where you're young, and I, what I'm noticing is you had confidence. Because I don't know about you, but I don't know if I would want to give a book to somebody if I didn't have confidence in the in them, and for that it requires them to have some confidence in themselves. So that they will use it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm noticing you're you're ha you're listening to these records. You're developing a love of language. There must have been some kind of experience that you're having that was obvious to other people that you have. You feel like you have some confidence to be able to learn these languages. So it's not like 
or was it just what was it would you describe it that way or would you just say it was enjoyable for you but then the enjoyment had to have some yeah, kind of i would say enjoyment is probably the best enjoyment? word for it okay and then people just invested in it so you oh. well you obviously if you're looking at these books i mean a lot of people would be scared of the books they would look at the encyclopedia and they wouldn't it would just look like too much you know um especially if it's uh you know my dad was a my dad worked with his hands and he was um high school graduate he did read but i i wouldn't say that he was i mean we had lots of books in our home it wasn't we were definitely not anti-intellectual or anti-book but i wouldn't describe him as someone as a reader that's those are not my my typical memories of my dad um and i always loved books as a kid but i i think i had a confidence like i felt like i could understand it they were useful to me mm -hmm. they were useful to me and i remember that from a young age so you yeah. you must have connected with the modality of that you must have had a connection and if you're having enjoyment and then obviously people can see you enjoy this five or six hours at the public library and you were active the whole time it's not like you and your brother were like uh trying to figure out something else to do no i mean the pro you know and of course it was a small library compared to libraries i'm now familiar with but you know yeah there was just so many things in it <laughs> and i remember becoming obsessed with uh, the ussr because you hear about it on the news at that time. And so there's this great book in the library, one of my favorite books when I was a kid. And it had to be because I still remember this book and I always bring it up. The Kodak Company had gone to USSR through a variety of places throughout the, the old republic and had given people cameras. And they would give them the pictures in exchange of keeping a set of the pictures. Uh, there, there's your old timey thing back when you had to take your pictures and get them developed. Um, but the these pictures from another place on the planet, you know, and I had still never left Kentucky by that point in my life. And to be reading books about people on the other side of the world and what are they eating for, you know, dinner? Some of these pictures have food in them. These are pictures of, you know, family, how, how are they dressed? Mm -hmm. um what what are these kinds of things and so i was just always fascinated with that bigger world and sometimes you see about it on television and then as soon as i'd say where is blank place my parents would say well look it up in the encyclopedia and now it's oh look at these names and what how, how would you pronounce those names and then you next time you're at the library you're asking the librarian how would one you know <laughs> pronounce <laughs> these names and then that's how you get introduced to other things um also, I, lo I love that. Look it up in the encyclopedia, which means, which means it's very different than Google. True. It's very different in Google because when you look it up in the encyclopedia, first of all, you have the object in your hands and you right. can feel the weight of the work. Yeah. And then to get to it, you have to pass a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. It's Remember? just like the, the shelves, the, the, the yeah, yeah. stacks of a library. Yeah, you don't have to do that with Google typically. I mean, well, right. I mean, there's typically a stuff, but 
you know, it's just a very different experience. And then you're saying talking to the librarian, you had to talk to the librarian. What you, and you had to ask them like another person that was older than you. How is it that this word is said, or how do you spell it? Right. So that's now, Brad, how does this all connect with what what, did your brother become a professor? He did not. He is a probate attorney in Atlanta. Oh. Um, he went to graduate school for U.S. history, did not like the academy. Um, he thought he didn't want to be a professor. And so he didn't finish. So he got a master's, okay. uh, kind of en passant, as we would say, uh, on his way to a doctorate, but he never finished his doctorate. Uh, he was really interested in American pop culture. Um, oh. pop culture meaning like yeah. movies M- music mostly music. and he still actually runs a podcast uh, on music no kidding uh, what's the yeah. name of the podcast it's called get on down with the stepfather of soul um, that's a long name for a podcast hold on say, say yes. it again get on get what? on down with the stepfather of soul with the stepfather of soul wow yeah stepfather yeah. of soul is the name i gave him we were teenagers and he was really into James Brown and trying to dance like James Brown. Is he and older so than you? He's uh, two years older than me. Okay. And so I jokingly call him the stepfather of soul instead of the godfather of soul, oh. which was James Brown's title. Okay. Uh, and he's used that now as his kind of moniker. Um, but we were both. How long, has he, how long has he done that podcast? Oh, dears. 15 some years wow back in the early podcasting back when people would do things and play it on real player um, oh yeah back in the old old well, back system. when it was on a an apple ipod even before that just <laughs> what you know, on the world wide web i thought that's how it got okay i, I had actually got name. started doing some of that stuff before him because i did college radio and then really? when i went I to that. spain as a fulbright scholar I started doing a little podcast on Real Player. Um, you know, low, low quality audio recordings in the early days of the internet. Um, and then he started one, and then I stopped doing mine. So he's definitely had more uh, hours logged uh, compared to me. Okay, but is it ju- is it commentary on Soul? For him, no. It's just music. So he just finds music, obscure. Really? Um, soul from different regions. One of his interests, and I think one of his theses was on um, how Soul Train created kind of a national black music. Kind of prior to that, so like early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, prior to that, every major black city, so Philadelphia, Atlanta, Chicago, uh, Memphis, um, had their own sound. And so you can immediately listen and tell which city that music came from. Wow. From the sound. Yeah. Soul Train brought all those acts together onto a national syndicated television program. And so then you begin something like a black culture that becomes kind of homogenous in terms of music, but even culture. So now when people say black, they're more likely going to think urban than rural. But there used to be a big difference between urban black and country black as we would say 
Um, mm -hmm. And so this kind of creation of a national black culture uh, coming out of the 70s is something he's fascinated. So his podcast focuses on kind of that pre-homogenization. Um, so here's, you know, like a week we're going to celebrate, you know, um, Philadelphia sound. And here are artists that no one remembers <laughs> who were big in the Philadelphia scene at the time. Where does he find them? Where does he find these pieces? He, uh, when he was in grad school, he started doing actual record swaps where people would mail each other records. This is still all before Napster. Wow, before that is really uh, old school. You know, online music. And so, you know, through the also, mail. Yeah. He's also a game show historian. My brother and I both love game shows. Wow. And he would actually trade game show tapes where people would be like, oh, here's a wow. old copy of a 1972 episode of Password. And, you know, in exchange, I'll give you the, the pilot to the price is right. And, you know, they trade tapes. Wow. Uh, back when well, there, there's the history. That's the historian in him right there. Yes. But to be fair, that's a very that historian thing. Fandom back then. Sure. That makes so sense. So now people claim to be I guess fans. Fan, I guess fandom is kind of a historical thing. Yeah. And now archiving people can be lazy because it's all on YouTube now anyway. But, oh, is it? It's all on YouTube? You now? know, stuff like that is. Oh. I, I don't hear people saying oh, I'm trading tapes. No. Uh, in the same way. Oh, that's interesting. But, you know, we used to do this even in libraries, the interlibrary loan, where, yeah, oh, right, this right. library would send that library a copy of a book they had. And you'd have to request from the librarian, you know, could you find a library that has this and procure, you know, books? You, you, you and your brother seem to have a relationship where you spur each other on. Oh, yeah. So that's nice because when you go to the library and you have somebody else there. Mm -hmm. that you can show something to and talk about it. And it's not just you that witnessed it. It's somebody else. True. And then that person is going home with you and you can talk about it. Does that, do you yeah. think that that just kind of made it accelerate? It did. Um, you know, did you get along with your brother and negative? We got along. We kind of had to, we, yeah. we, we had each other. And we do you had remind, a lot of, do you remind them of that? We had to get along. That's the part of that. <laughs> okay. um, both of us were academically strong. And that was what we were known for. Yeah. And so there was a kind of competitiveness yeah. in it. Okay. Uh, that wasn't always fun. You know, there's for you or for him for, for both of us. Really? There's hilarious. I think it's usually the younger brother that has that. No. Uh, hilariously, uh, my brother and I still wish we had these cassette tapes we used to make. So my grandfather had bought a tape recorder in like 1981. And my brother and I would go to the store with the little money we'd scrounged up and would buy blank cassette tapes. And we would just put it in the cassette recorder and we would try to download kind of everything in our imaginations onto these cassette tapes. We would create little shows and skits. And That's fun. sometimes it's just reading books onto the tape right. uh, you know, and trying to imitate James Earl Jones. Uh, if you remember, Wait, what was James Earl Jones in that? Was that what was James it, Earl Jones? He had just the, come out of the, the well, he was October? 
you know oh yeah uh, star wars of the voice course. of vader yeah the real star wars yeah yes the real ones <laughs> the real and he had just become big at that time he had read the bible onto tape and people could buy you know like 60 cassette tapes a uh, total of james or jones reading the bible um and wow. so we heard some of those tapes because my aunt had bought them and we were listening to that and so oh we all want to talk you know with that super booming bass voice when you're eight nine years old uh-huh. and um and so wow. we just do tapes of all kinds of stuff and the things we were reading gave us the ideas and so even though we really didn't know what was happening in other parts of the world we'd make up skits about being in other parts of the world and so our imaginations yeah grew because we were interested in the fact that there was a greater world out there not as an escape but as a complement to our very life we live and that part has followed me and i try to use that in my teaching with students to show them that there's a world out there a world that works very differently than the one they're used to that's equally human equally blessed equally um dealing with similar problems and once you realize that you gain a perspective that makes you not overly dwell on the particularities of any particular situation but then to say and this sounds really weird now i'm about to say it out loud how this is an episode in the general human drama and when i teach bible study at my church I'm always bringing that up, particularly when we're reading like Old Testament documents like Genesis. Oh, no, this is every story you've ever heard. Stories of lying and deceit and murder, but also of love and of uh, tenderness. Um, Were you biblically literate? You mentioned James Earl Jones reading the Bible. Did you grow Um, up biblically literate? Yes, in a very literate line of preachers. So Christian? um, christian baptist christian baptist um and then when i went to college so we were you know i went to sunday school every sunday of my life what what version of the bible was read oh the king james bible of course king james uh when i got to college and my uh i was raised on the king james as well (laughs) my bible professor wonderfully would say oh you read the old king jim uh, and mm. then she insisted that I get a copy of the Oxford English Bible. Um, and that was, you know, it has footnotes and the, all uh, that stuff. And the, that was the, a uh, textbook the, Bible. The, this is resting on the Oxford English Bible. English Bible microphone. Yes. But <laughs> I have I have the Schofield King James up there, oh, yeah. right up there. Yeah. <laughs> well, the and Schofield so, has uh, footnotes too. Oh, yeah. So when I went to Georgetown College, Every student had not only religion requirements, Bible requirements. And so actually Were those enjoyed those, those courses enjoyed. I enjoyed them. I don't know if everybody did, but <laughs> I did. And it really opened the Bible to me, not just as a book of my faith and religion, right. but as dare I say, a piece of great literature. Mm-hmm. And I had great Bible professors who okay. allowed the Bible to illuminate life uh, not just an error how do we please god but here's the trope in all of western civilization that follows from this idea and then you realize oh 
And then my own interest in the Bible, you know, I, every time I become interested, I read all the books I can find on it. And just the history of the Bible and, oh, people were executed for translating the Bible. And you start beginning to realize, oh, this book is precious and valuable. Yeah. Um, and so that was part of my well, formation. So when you got to Georgetown, you were already pretty familiar yes. with the Bible. So it wasn't, uh, and in the King James too, which right. I think is one of the more artistic yeah. You know, like Psalm 23 in the King James. Correct. Uh, I I don't, I, I can't think of that Psalm in any other translation. No, it's it's no. burned in my memory forever. Just like, you know, Amazing Grace. Yeah. It's kind of like, did, you, read, did you sing hymns? Oh, yes. Tons of hymns. hymns. And of course, I grew up in the Black Church. So tons of music, <clears throat> uh, tons of good preaching. There were there uh, no, there were no white people in your church? Not in the one I was at. There okay. were white people who attended sometimes my the church my mother grew up in. Now, of course, this is deep segregated South. I shouldn't say deep South because people in Tennessee would get mad. <laughs> no, no one in Tennessee thinks that Kentucky's Southern. Um, and so... I uh, just look at a map. <laughs> we had the remnants of old slave yeah. life. So right, as right. Black people Definitely rural. became freed... Yeah. They did seek membership in these white churches that they were attending as slaves, but then were not granted membership as free people. So and you grew so, up in a black church. That's how you describe it. Yeah, I just call it the black church okay. because you know there's it's, a certain it's way because because white people didn't want to go there. Is what you're saying? Some of it, and they definitely okay. didn't want black people at their church. It, you gotcha. know, uh, as King comments, you know, uh, Sunday 10 a.m. the most segregated hour in America. I've heard that, yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. One of the nice things about being in Los Angeles is you can be in these multiracial, multicultural churches. Um, is that your where, experience in LA now? That's that's the you know dare I say one of the biggest positives of being in LA. Are you still Baptist? No, not really. How did um, that? How did, how did that? Well, transition? I joke. I'm an Episcopalian by marriage. Okay. My wife grew up Episcopalian. Um, when I was doing graduate work in Memphis, Tennessee. I became aware of the congregational tradition that goes all the way back to the pilgrims and Puritans. Um, and so I call myself a Baptist Congregationalist Episcopalian. So I'm not a member of the Episcopal Church. I never joined the Episcopal Church. I've never been received uh, or confirmed in that sense. I, I joke, my confirmation is the Holy Ghost baptisms, you know, completely thrown underwater by Baptist preachers. Uh, and held there for how long? <laughs> yeah, for enough a time for couple seconds. drinking the water in the baptismal fire. That's how long, really? Wow. Yeah. And I don't know how to swim. Full so immersion? I was just drowning. Uh, full in full immersion, right? Full yes. immersion. Yeah. Full immersion. Doesn't count. You have to be all the way under. <laughs> now, do you still read the King James Version in church, or is, have they gone to the Oxford no, the church I go to um, usually use revised uh, standard version, new revised standard. Um, I still read King yeah, James some and the yeah. Oxford English Bible just because that's my academic kind of RS Bible. RS. And I like the King James just for its historical sounds and values. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, when I took New Testament Greek um, in college, because I was fascinated with the idea of learning Greek and how many languages did, did you take take in college? And we we haven't gotten to Spain yet, but oh, yeah. Spanish, Spanish, you... French, German, 
Wow. New Testament Greek were the four I took in college. Did you take Latin in high school? You mentioned your dad. I did not. Uh, By the time I got to high school, we only had Spanish and French. How did your dad do in Latin? I don't think you ever answered that. Oh, well, according to his report card, he made C plus in Latin, which is a mighty darn good grade back then. Before grade inflation. Yeah. We haven't Um, even gotten to grade inflation yet. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. Okay. So you're taking New Testament Greek. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no. But what I loved about the idea was that you could really tap into the history of the Bible by looking at Greek and the evolution of language and um, had a lot of theological value. Oh, yeah. Um, time. I regret that I've never taken a course in biblical Hebrew. It's still on the list. But um, reading the Bible in Greek helped me connect it to Greek culture as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, when I started studying philosophy, along with that and realizing, oh, Paul just said that faith is the hypostasis. Wait a bit. That, Plato uses that word. Oh, wait. Uh, oh, the substance, the, you know, the literal reality of oh. things. Uh, I keep saying sometime we're on a book for churches, something called church philosophy. Mm-hmm. Just here are these moments in the Bible where, you know, beginning of the Gospel of John and beginning was the Logos. You know, well, what right, is that? Right, right. Uh, all these philosophical words pop up in the Bible. Brad, um, when when I don't know if you ever said what your major was. Oh, in sorry. College. Did you in were college, you a philosophy major? I wound up a philosophy major. Oh. I kept my other plan. I created my own major in college because I went to a school that allowed you to do that. Uh, called modern language studies. Okay. Uh, now you can actually find that in universities, but <laughs> you were a pioneer. Yeah. Uh, where it was just I'm going to take sixty credits of languages and so i had a primary a secondary and a tertiary language in that requirement uh, your so primary was, was primary. spanish okay uh the secondary was german the tertiary wow. was french and then i had what i called language elective space uh and that's where my new testament greek classes went how um, did you end up a philosophy major what in the world happened yeah well, we had. I mean, a you're a Baptist. You're yeah. <laughs> you're King James. Yeah. Hymns, and yeah. then you get to. Well, I, I mean, the language thing makes sense, but yeah. but like, what what is it about philosophy that? Well, my first love of philosophy happened at Georgetown College. Took philosophy. Everyone had to take it. It's okay. called basic philosophy, but technically it was philosophy of religion at Ooh. Georgetown College, because it's a Baptist college, and let's talk about religion as much as we can. <laughs> and so we... It sounds like something I would do. And so the very <laughs> first book I ever read in philosophy was Kelly James Clark's book, Return to Reason. Oh, yes. I have that um, and I know, I know that book. Oh, yeah. And Good. I love that book. I've taught it at times in the sense, and I just tell students, when I teach that book, I'm really over-energetic. This was the book. Uh, and I am asking, how would I prove the existence of God? Hmm. And I'd grown up in a Baptist church that had always said, there's no use to even think that way or talk that way. And here's my Baptist professors Mm -hmm. thinking and talking that way. And one of my professors, when I confided in him this tension, he said, you can be a Baptist and not leave your brain at the door. And what a concept. And I had 
Robert is that the Kirsten first time you felt that way? Or first it was one time of the first times that? I felt that way. What, well, what, up to that point, I mean, you obviously have been thinking a lot. Oh, yeah. What, I mean, had you felt like you had a adversarial relationship with your faith up until I didn't that have point? an adversarial one. I just held them separate from each other. Okay. Uh, I thought, separate, okay, I'm just separate really but person. equal. <laughs> what, what, what was it what was it about the separation though i, I don't well, understand was, well you're a very brilliant person very intellectually motivated that won't save your soul at all and no amount of your intelligence saves your soul okay right and so you know as the old hymn would go as long as i got king jesus i don't need nobody else <laughs> um but yeah but that's that's you that in my in my context growing up that way i went to an integrated church in denver yeah that was an anti-intellectual mm-hmm. sentiment. I'm sad to say. Um, oh yeah, because that was just a reason not to think about things. Mm-hmm. Usually, for oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, they're they're, they're thinkers there. In the Myers Briggs, you throw you swing a dead cat, you're going to hit the thinkers. But I feel like I think some people even lost their faith because of it coming out. No, of I suspect experience. that did happen. I, but for me. I actually realized those two things could go together and philosophy okay. was where I could do it. And did you have was, any discussions with your parents about that or your grandparents? Not really, uh, because I was from that generation where as long as you went, if you were, if you went to college, you mm-hmm. were going to be pretty well, well set for your life. Okay. And so they didn't really care what I majored in. Oh, really? Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, they'd never been to college. They didn't know how colleges worked or operated. I'm what we'd now call first gen student. That's a um, very that's a very pure way of looking at it then. Yeah, and so maybe that comes filters learn. down into your way of the pure way of looking at the academy, as you call it, instead of the yeah. industry of higher education. Correct. And so I still I tell students even today, I'm not going to persuade you to major in one thing instead of another. Find where your passions are, find what you're good at. If you know, if you get a bad grade from me, I'm secretly telling you you might not be good at this, but there might be that other course where you're right. really doing good. And that was me in philosophy, okay. where I'm taking the course and realizing, oh, I'm getting A's in philosophy and B's in history. And then oh, I realized, wow. oh, I'm better at philosophy than I am at oh. history. Okay. And I went to a school, you're talking about grade inflation. I went to a school that had no pluses or minuses. So uh, the second you didn't have an A, you had a B. The second you didn't have a B, you had a C. You know, it's that kind of place. Uh-huh. And so I realized, oh, I'm getting A's in philosophy. So after basic philosophy, I took logic. I took um, existentialism. Ooh. And my existentialism professor was the great Ruth Heiser, uh, really well-known uh, kind of Kentucky Baptist thinker. She had done a lot of stuff even with the Kentucky Baptist Convention had been a missionary for a while, um, got her doctorate at Indiana University, did her undergraduate, I think, at Baylor, um, back when Baylor's philosophy department was known as like the Baptist philosophy center, uh, since it's really become actually Catholic. It's kind of funny. Um, so <laughs> I have colleagues here who wonder, gee, there's all these evangelicals in the philosophy department. And then at Baylor, um, 
he's dead now, but uh, Stuart Rosenbaum one time was trying to recruit oh, me yeah. to Baylor, saying we need more young Baptist scholars coming to Baylor because there's all these non-Baptists at Baylor. I'm like, it seems like the two programs just need to switch their philosophy departments. But um, the, but Ruth now, Heiser. The yeah, the, these, well, I'm sorry, I have to bring this up. I, I yeah. don't have to, but I, you mentioned Rosenbaum and I just happened to know that name. Now, were just uh, were these Democrats? You think these these Baptists at, I don't ba know. at Baylor? At, that at, I don't at know. Georgetown? I don't know Baylor well enough to make the judgments. Did you ever make these connections between religion and politics at all? Not really, because I grew up. They didn't talk about it in class. Not not in class. Comments? No. Okay. No. Um, in they didn't have like. Uh, a picture of George, uh, Ronald Reagan with a knife through his head or no, anything no, like that? No. Nothing like that. Okay. No, no. To be fair, I grew up in a world that, at least in Adair County, Kentucky, was both Democrat and Republican. And of course, Kentucky is one of those weird states. It tends to lean Republican for presidential elections and Democrat for governors. Yeah. Now, to be fair, this is an old notion of Democrat. Yes. But uh, sometimes it's called Dixiecrat. Okay. Um, so, you know, Southern Democrats. And then you had the yeah. Republicans, uh, you know, Lincoln lovers, as some Democrats would call them back then. Um, and so I grew now up you, in a very different political climate. Well, I'm just trying to think of you, you. You mentioned you took logic and you took existentialism. And you seem to have a special appreciation for the lady that taught you existentialism. Yes. And I'm just trying to think of. The first thing I'm thinking of is the, a Baptist that is interested in existentialism. She is she doing? Uh, um, did did she have a, an apologetic concern, or did she? Pretty, she was mostly. I mean, we did Kierkegaard. We did like one week of Nietzsche. We <laughs> did Heidegger. We did nice amount of Paul Tillich. Oh, okay. You know, so it was definitely like a Christian existentialism. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. And so my my was it, was it theological liberalism? Would you say was it would would you use the term liberal? I've, the term liberal in theology doesn't have the same exact yeah. connotation. But but did you ever did you were you cognizant of you're getting a liberal theological bent in this or not it? to my knowledge? Okay, I knew it was not. Um, fundamentalist right no, um definitely paul, Til paul tillich is definitely not fundamental yeah <laughs> um, so for me it was just oh i didn't think there was a tension you know like between being baptist and intelligent at georgetown college i began to realize oh there's a whole way to divide baptist into those who are interested in these yeah. kind of intellectual questions that's a that's a pretty big thought that's a pretty big thought to have. and so i grew up at georgetown college knowing oh you can be a brilliant young baptist scholar <laughs> cool um and so then i never had any worries about it after that mm. and so i mean baptist still forms i would say like 75 percent of my theology and the 25 percent it doesn't it's just baptist had nothing to say about that <laughs> <laughs> but um were you working on why, why didn't she major in theology that is probably more of the crisis of faith story. Um, 
when I was in college, I had yearnings for ministry and going to seminary. So actually, when I applied for graduate programs, I also applied for seminaries. Um, I knew by the faculty I spoke to that philosophy would equally work. So I just didn't major in religion at Georgetown College, even though I had they enough called classes. It, they called it religion. In it, yeah. Okay. Um, and what have you. Um, and so I didn't major in that just because I didn't think it was what I was interested in. When, when did you have the thought, I'm going to get a PhD in philosophy? Was it at Georgetown? It was at Georgetown College. Because I had to get a PhD if I ever wanted to live that professor's life. How, how uh, what, I want to say what grade you were, what level were you? It's like sophomore year. Wow, that's pretty early to have that thought. Yeah. And um, at Georgetown Was it after College, logic? Was it after existentialism? It was kind of along with it. But my decision to be a college professor didn't automatically entail a decision to be a philosophy professor. Okay. So I, when I applied for grad schools, I applied to seminary. I applied to uh, PhD programs in philosophy. And I applied for graduate programs in languages, particularly Spanish. So I could have equally become a Spanish professor. Uh, but I knew I wanted to be a professor. Oh. And upon people at Georgetown finding that out about me, uh, they recruited me into the honors program. Now, at Georgetown College, honors is only junior and senior year. Um, so you have to have kind of proven your mettle <laughs> during your first two years. And so I got into that um, and decided, oh, well, I'll try to blend my love of Spanish and philosophy. Start working on the Spanish philosopher Miguel de Unamuno. And that got me the Fulbright to study more for Unamuno in Salamanca. How do you spell his name? Um, U-N-A-M-U-N-O. Okay. Unamuno. What was it like studying in Spain? Did you say University of Salamanca? Yeah, University of Salamanca, the fourth oldest university in Europe. Uh, really? It was a treat. It was such a real treat. Spain is... What are the first three? Uh, is it Cambridge, Oxford, and Sorbonne? Uh, well, Paris is one. I think Bologna is either one or two. I can't remember if it's before Paris or after, but definitely they're the two oldest, Paris, Bologna. Third is Oxford. Fourth is Salamanca. Uh, oh. Salamanca before Cambridge. Um, oh. And Was it a Catholic school? It started as one. It then became secularized. Okay. And then the Catholic Church created a second university in Salamanca called the Pontificate. And so the Pontifical University of Salamanca is also in Salamanca. <laughs> and so I got to enjoy both of those. What's that town? Their like? libraries. And it uh, looks really pretty. I mean, I've seen pictures. Salamanca is a beautiful city up in the northwest part of Spain, um, right kind of south of Basque Country. Yeah, I was going to say, if it's northwest, it's in the mountains. Yeah. Okay. And so did you did you meet any Basque people when you were there? Not really. It was a tense time at the time uh, between Spain and Basque country. And of course, uh, about a year after I left was the big Atocha bombing of the ETA. Um, and so I didn't I've met more Basque people in California because there's this big Basque community in Bakersfield. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. I've actually met more Basque people in Bakersfield, California, than I met when I was in Spain. Even though Unamuno is a Basque philosopher. 
Oh, he I was born in the Basque country. Really? And one of my favorite current Spanish philosophers, uh, Javier Zuberi, was also Basque. So there's some kind of connection I have with Basque culture, I guess. But Salamanca was nice because people in Spain in general are very well educated, even if they don't go to college. Um, and they, they like books. They love books. And in fact, the street I lived on in Salamanca was called Bookseller Street. Oh, that's um, cool. And people read the newspaper. They read multiple newspapers. Everyone had an opinion about something. You could go to the bar and people would be dis- discussing politics, discussing, you know, theology, um, philosophy. And it really opened my eyes to a world where, of course, it's a little university, you know, town. It's always been since medieval times. Um, but it was just nice to be at such a center of thinking. It's kind of like uh, one of my professors at Georgetown talked about visiting Oxford once and says, you know, you enter into Oxford and you immediately just feel your IQ go up a couple of points. <laughs> uh, Salamanca was a lot like that. Was it cold? It also showed me that I was very American. You were very was, American. It was is my it, first this, time outside of the country. So this was this, uh, uh, this a surprise to you? <laughs> it was. Really? In a wow. certain way. Okay. Um, now, why do you say that? Why do you why do you say you discovered you were American? Well, just in the sense of until you are outside of the United States, you don't realize how American certain things are. So one of my favorite examples is I sat in on a Marlo Ponty class uh, at the University of Salamanca, grad level class. So, so it's not that you had a baseball cap on and you had some, yeah, dip, yeah, no. you dip well, in. I have a similar case of that. And you were like, you well, were like, I did have one moment of that. So I was at a pub with some of my colleagues at, from University of Salamanca. And every Thursday night, because there are no classes on Friday there, every college student kind of goes out and stays up all night going to pub to pub to pub to pub. And it, uh, there's actually a Spanish slang verb, which really just means to Thursday. <laughs> when do they go to bed oh well spaniards only go to bed like between uh, 4 a.m and 8 a.m because they're going to sleep in the afternoon during siesta anyway and so you have these wow. late dinners i was really tiring you uh go out and someone immediately detected i was wearing a class ring and i from your high so, school no from my college um i had a oh. high school ring but when I got my degree at Georgetown College, I bought a college ring uh, for my kind of graduation gift. And of course, they had never seen such a thing. And so that was <laughs> one of those moments where I then stopped wearing it out oh. in Spain because it was just, what? why are you wearing this thing? Yeah. Oh, a ring that said you went to school? <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So I find that weird. But um, other times it was just, did you keep that in, schedule? Did yeah, you keep I, that 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 I Spanish did. schedule? Did and it interfere with your schoolwork? No, because schoolwork is set up in that schedule. Oh my goodness! It's a Spanish way of life. Well, and how, what do you have for breakfast? Tell me, how do you get? Where do you get up? Breakfast in Spain. Um, so you might have like a croissant, some coffee, of course. Okay. Uh, the Thank Spanish God. joke would be Thank to say God you, you had, said that. You had coffee, cigarettes for breakfast. 
And then for your kind of mid-morning snack, you'd have like a croissant, some more coffee. So these guys aren't going to 24-hour fitness or they're not, they're, no, no. they're not working out. To be fair, they don't need to. They walk everywhere. Okay. You know, they're not doing they Jane, Jane Fonda tapes. Food. Yeah. You know, and, what do they, they, what do you have for lunch? Lunch is the big, big meal in Spain. So you'd usually have um, three courses for lunch. And so three? first you see some kind of salad of some kind, but like hearty salad. Like, you know, like a salad niçoise in France, kind of Spanish, Spanish things. So you'd have like a salad with tuna fish on it. Um, and of course, That's a good. good crusty piece of bread. Mm. Um, then you'd have a more standard with butter. Second plate. No, they, the Spaniards didn't use a lot of butter with their bread. You had a lot of olive oil Ooh. with your bread. Okay. The, There's the something. In other words, it's not dry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then you, you'd have some meat with vegetable kind of thing second and then a dessert for lunch and of is course the, is the dessert right after the yes. food okay. yes and then we'll be able to but then you go to then you go home for two hours okay yeah you know, the siesta oh you rest right after you don't yes. go do the hardest work of your day right. you, then you go you back rest. to work from five to eight interesting and then at eight you're done what what, what uh, time is lunch Lunch is like 2 p.m. And dinner is like 9 p.m. Oh, wow. So usually around 5, right before you go back in for classes or work or anything, you'd have what's called merienda. You know, you'd have some kind of pastry um, or something, you know, just to tide you over. Mm-hmm. What's for dinner? Dinner uh, depends oh. on whether you're at home or going out. If you're at home, it's usually going to be a soup, um, some bread cheese if you're out you're going to different pubs spaniards never stay at one place very long and so you go to different pubs you get like one caña which is this kind of thin glass of beer and you'd get some food item which we'd call a uh, tapa Um, okay and then you just go to like five of those places and each place kind of had different things and so is this very expensive how expensive is not very expensive at all so this is yeah. prior to the euro. So my conversions are going to be really weird. Uh, let's say it'd be like a dollar to get a, a glass of beer. Wow. Um, but that came with a food item for free. It might be a little bowl of chips or peanuts or. That's, uh, that's a really good value. Toast. <laughs> Wait, uh, are you, are you, is this a dollar in current terms or back? Dollar then? American. Back then. Back then. Okay. Yeah. A dollar back then would buy you that. So this is like what? But you'd go to like six different places. $3 now? $2? Yeah. yeah. Something. I mean, last time I was in Spain, all this has become expensive because uh, the euro has made everything expensive. Back, But back when you did it, it was like you could, for 20 bucks, you could spend have a whole the night. evening out. A whole evening. And have money left over. Wow. But And, and now are, are people, they're not wasted after this. They're they're no. but they're lubricated enough for pleasant conversation how would you yeah. put it okay well real conversation i mean spaniards have conversations and so you go <laughs> to the pub and you're always with people you know one word that i asked some of my colleagues at the time what word would you use to describe americans and the word they picked was very interesting it was solo uh, american life can be very solitary 
in Spain, that doesn't exist. Even when you're dating someone, it's in a group setting um, and whatnot. And people go and you're expected to leave with your group. So you can't like abandon your group and run after anybody or anything like that. I don't know if I interrupted you. Uh, it didn't mean to. When you were saying how you be- realized you were American. Yeah. Did Were you one of these solo people? Not really. I've, I've always kind of been personable. And I love, I'm, I'm, I always joke, I'm an inverted extrovert. Um, I don't mind being by myself, yeah. but I so you were enjoy not, the company. You were not in this, this way of, they, of them no, describing no, no, no. Americans. No, um, and they found it weird that I wanted so much to be out and about because Americans aren't like that. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I guess what was neat was like, you get the newspaper every morning. And American news is now in the international section. Mm. And you begin to realize, oh, I'm not front and center. <laughs> um, I'm now an American. And now I have to represent America in a lot of oh, ways. That when I'm in America, you know, between uh. certain racist people I grew up with who would wonder what it would mean for you to be an American, let alone than um, to be in a country and be a representative of the United States, because Fulbright is technically a diplomacy uh, grant. Oh. Um, and then to say, I'm, I'm the representative of the United States. And then you Brad, realize, oh, you're so American. Brad, I don't know if you realize, you probably do, but you, you, you just revealed that you love America. Oh, yeah. I always have them. Well, that's... That, that came right out right there from learning when you said that you rep- represent America. Yeah. That, that the only reason you'd have that thought is if you love America. Well, you'd have to, I mean, this is why I think study abroad when it's That'd not done as tourism is good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Where you have to really realize. Were you the there for a full year? I was there for a full year. That's, that's a good amount of time. You're Spanish. And, must have, and not in a program. You, and you're speaking right? Spanish. This person whole time. just living there. Yes. And you're, wow, your Spanish must have. Yeah, just, you learn a lot of Spanish you didn't learn in school. Wow. <laughs> that way. But it's also just, and then I've traveled way. to other places since, but it's just like you begin to realize, oh, here's what it means to be American. And how that interacts with other things. Mm-hmm. So you go, and I remember wow. Columbine shootings happened while wow. I was living in Spain. And the next morning, I'm in my office at the University of Salamanca, and my office mates are asking me a thousand questions about America and about guns and things like that. And I explain growing up with guns. And I have to, of course, none of this is Spanish that you've been like taught to talk about, right? And so I'm explaining America's gun culture. And I want to make it intelligible to them. And you begin to realize, okay, I have to understand it in order to explain it to someone who's not from here. Yes. And then you realize, ah, that's what that is. Were they asking, uh, were they interested in this as a matter of, of contempt? Or was it, a, was it a curiosity? It's curiosity. Um, that must have been easier for you to have a conversation if oh, you yeah, didn't feel like it, you were constantly under some kind of contempt no no uh the contempt for americans versus the curiosity for americans i think is 
at least outside the United States, a very recent phenomenon, would say since the last 25 years or so. Oh, okay. It used to be any time an American was anywhere on the planet, they would be objects of curiosity, not curi- yeah. uh, objects of disdain. And is this a multiracial group that you're hanging out with in Spain? It is. Yeah. And some of that's just because of the nature of Spanish of Empire, Spain. but also the nature mm-hmm. of Europe. Mm-hmm. And so gotcha. you had people from all over. You have what my dissertation director calls the more pleasant old world racism. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Spaniards had the no more problem. Pleasant, being black, hold on, I gotta but, ra- I gotta write that down. The more pleasant. This is what my dissertation director called it. Old world, world racism. Was he black? No. Dissertation director? No. Okay. He was English. Interesting. Uh, and he talks about in context, he, he moved to Memphis to head this PhD program at the University of Memphis that I attended. And he moved he, there from what part of England? From Essex. He was at the University of Essex prior. And he jokes that he's moved to Memphis and there's such racial tension in Memphis, mm-hmm. uh, given its role in the South and things. Right. And he found it weird because Memphis is a predominantly Scottish town. I didn't know. And that. there's all these Presbyterian churches everywhere. And he was like, Am I supposed to give up my hatred of Scott <laughs> to hate black people in America? No, there's nothing and wrong with black he people. He hates Scots. He hates these the Scots. Scots. Yeah, he did not. He like was Scott. he was landed gentry. He's he his ancestors fought in wars about Scotland, you know. And he was just he found that funny. So he was like, "No, I'll still hate the French." That's interesting. More than and so when you I was know, in Spain, Winston Churchill in his history of the English speaking peoples uses yeah. the term race early yeah. on in that to refer to the different groups of people that lived on that on the on in those aisles. And yeah. I never realized how many different groups were bumping into each other over there. Interesting. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so interestingly, you know, me being an American. Right. Was more pleasant to them than if I were French. And you're right. talking about the dissertation advisor, not Spain. Well, no, my own experience, like when I was okay. in Spain. Okay, I got you. Right. I was never treated differently for being, let's say, black. Right. Right. But had I been French, (laughs) (laughs) then the ribbing would have begun. And it reminds us that what do they not like about the French? Well, you know, the wars, the Carlist Wars in the 19th century between Spain and France. Um, I mean, people remember that. I mean, what what impact is that? Part of the cultural heritage. I mean, why do the Hatfields hate McCoys at the Kentucky West Virginia border? No one really knows anymore, but we're going to keep it up. Oh, okay. Interesting. It reminds us as one uh, philosopher of race wonderfully says race does not travel. So, you know, you go to Rwanda. Race does not travel. Yeah. So you go to like Rwanda and you can have a whole genocide with people that to us Americans look alike. Yeah, but they are sure that there's a difference between being um, Tutsi versus uh, we can't remember the other group all of a sudden. Hutus. Hutus. Yeah, 
and they can swear they can spot the difference in a heartbeat. And I'm just like, I don't know. Amazing. Um, and they're willing to go to genocide over it. Um, or you see the um, in Croatia and, you know, the whole break apart of the former Yugoslavia. Yeah. And so human difference and misunderstanding, I would say, ultimately, but, you know, to be willing to fight each other we're going to have what I think are insignificant differences uh, is a phenomenon of the world. It's always happened. Yeah. But it does not look the same everywhere. We're going to have uh, my students that all the time because they want to somehow believe that, you know, the stories we're talking about in the United States is somehow a global conversation. No, it's, it's a conversation inside American history. And the more you understand America, the better you're understand it, but no one wants to understand America. And so <laughs> they just, then the next thing you know, they've, in, they've invented imaginary other countries that don't have similar problems or similar, you know, situations. Yeah. Brad, it sounds like you are a scholar and a, an educator which brings up the question of why would you want to be associate dean? What what is it about? Is it the money? Did you need the money? No, 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 no. no, no. Um, in I fact, mean, it's, um, it's, it's a lot. This more is going to be a scandalous sentence. This is a scandalous sentence. As I say in my classes, a scandalous sentence. Um, the scandalous sentence for today is: I actually made less money this year than I made last year. And some of that has to do with how this job takes up a lot of time uh, compared to having external things I used to do. Also, I'm a year-long contracted employee now at the university. So a lot of things that would give you extra summer money doesn't exist for me anymore. Uh, Not by a big difference, but I did make a little more without being in administration. That's different if I were higher, to be fair. I became associate dean not really because I wanted to become it, but I felt like I needed to become it for a particular battle I was fighting in the university. And it was around graduate education. And I've been an advocate for years about our institution really investing in graduate education and not simply seeing it as a revenue process. So most universities see their graduate program as simply kind of revenue. It's judged by revenue. And I had ideas about doing it differently. And of course, when you speak up too much, you become the one who then has to do these things. And so I was brought in in part to reimagine graduate education. So this was one of those, the dog that barks the loudest cases. I was just the dog that barked the loudest on the issue. And they said, As a professor you did? Yes. And they're like, well, you've done as much as you can as professor on this issue. You would have to lead the movement. Um, and I was given this opportunity. I said, okay, I'll do one term of it. If I don't get to can address this concern, yeah, I'm going to quit. <laughs> and it, as soon as it's done and graduate pieces have been put in play, I'll be done. And then I go back to faculty. Can you do that? Can uh, now that you've been there for a while, can you fight? Go back to faculty? Yes. No, I mean, can you fight for the academy? Not, not 
the industry of higher education, yeah. the revenue source to pay all these lawyers that they they have. Yeah. Pay, pay all these administrators. Yeah. But what I hope what can you do? Well, one of the projects I'm trying to do is reassert departmental governance of universities. Um, That's not happening? Not, not really, not as much as it used to be. And it's because universities have become so regulated mm -hmm. by federal and state processes. It's just easier to have an administrator do it. And this is that birth of the administration class that we see in higher education. Yes. Uh, because, you know, the professor's life I fell in love with was not chasing down lawsuits. And so you get the people who are willing to do that and they become lifelong administrators. Right. Um, and at least the school I went to, Georgetown College, the dean was a faculty member of Georgetown College. He taught. The president classes. was a faculty member of Georgetown College. He taught. Yeah. And then that, after I left, a new person became dean and provost of Georgetown College, who was one of my journalism advisors when I worked for student newspaper. She taught my wife, Milton. She's now the president of Georgetown College, Rosemary Allen. Your wife's uh, name is Milton? Sorry, I just yes, had to get that Yes, my wife, Milton. There. Yes, taught my wife, Milton. She taught Milton's my wife, Milton. Yes. You know, you know Milton. I know. <laughs> uh, the fun of a uh, sorry i have to i just uh, no, i, 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 I gotta get the i gotta get the the pleasure in there sometimes oh yes the fun of the amphiboly the um so <laughs> you always love a guest that knows exactly what what that the, the administration is. of georgetown college came out of its faculty you didn't have outsiders kind of coming in to administer but what we're seeing in higher education now most are people coming from outside institutions, then taking the first half of their time, learning the institution and getting to know people. Then they kind of move something around and then they're yeah. off to their next job, the next gig. Yeah. I'm trying to model in that this position sense. and I've been arguing with faculty colleagues. No, we should all be actually taking turns being associate dean. We should be taking turns being dean. Ooh. Right. We should have, you, because somewhere in higher education, one of the reasons it seems like an industry now is it's gotten away from its professor. It's gotten away from its profession. And, and now with all the regulations and things, yeah. no sane faculty member would become an administrator, but then that has opened the door for the people who are willing to do that for the right price point to do it. And institutions now have cycles of new people at the top yeah. disconnected from the long-term people who are teaching and working with students. Mm -hmm. And so I'm already on my fourth president, like my fifth or sixth provost. This is my- You mean uh, since you started- Yeah, since I started in 2003. Yeah, okay. And only yeah. one of those people out of all of that was a colleague I already had here at the university. Was so, that Eng? Who was that? Michael Eng? Michael Eng, yes. He yeah, was I remember, already I remember him. I remember him. I, I remember him thinking he was a faculty guy. Yeah. But he was a priest, obviously. He was also a Jesuit, Jesuit priest. Jesuit priest yeah. But the, uh, 
every time I saw him, I thought of as a, him as a faculty. I saw, yeah. I thought of him as a professor. Yeah, because he was. Yeah. And so the question becomes, how do we get back to that? Back to a that. way of, how do we have administration so part of this is as as kind of training up the professorate to mm-hmm. have almost an expectation that this it's not just that you're going to be chair you're going to take your time being chair and you know maybe graduate director or some somewhere yeah. but that you're going to go university wide at some mm-hmm. point just yeah. so that you can be baptized by fire in all of the nitty gritty details that people deal with in the administrative class and you're bringing your wealth of uh, institutional memory and what it's like to actually be on the front lines with the mission of the university which is the students right let's not forget that yeah yeah they're paying the bills but they're they're also the reason for the 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 institution to exist in the first place what are we doing with that? It's not just about transcripts here, not just pushing up transcripts. True, true. So, it's, but more importantly, is that you do that more moment important. Okay. Administrative. And then we turn to faculty life. And then bring that experience and that new wisdom to how things operate. Right. Okay. So, one of the things that makes the administrative class problematic in higher education is people can make a mess and then leave the institution. That's not good. Right. And then they go to the next place and make a mess. And then they just jump from place to place. And they get promoted. Sounds like a politician, actually. (laughs) Sounds like a politician. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you look in the Chronicle of Higher Education, there are more jobs for administrators than for faculty right now. And so, you know, people just jump from place to place oh, I want to be associated to become dean, to become provost, to become president. And it's that's the game they play. And I'm not interested in that. It's like so, someone running for city council and then supervisor and then Congress and, and yeah. Senate. Yeah. And so governor is there. So I'm kind of an experiment, but I don't mind. I'm, I'm an experimentalist as a pragmatist. Um, I'm trying to figure out whether it is actually still possible to be a faculty-centered faculty administrator for a little period to to accomplish a particular task. Yeah. And then we turn to my professorial life. That's a different strategy than most people in higher education administration today. Yes. Uh, so pro- I'm here to try to solve a problem I experienced at the lower level, get up here, try to solve it, then go back down, which is what and, I'd and hope. And you're not sure. Us- yeah. And you're not sure if this experiment is going to work. Like if you're going to actually be a, an inspiration to your, not only your philosophy colleagues, but also other faculty, other departments to do the same thing. Is that kind of what you're saying? You're not yeah, sure. That would be highly experimental. Um, but the, your yeah. fact that you're a pragmatist, you said you're a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. Um, tell everybody what that means. Well, pragmatism, of course, is an American philosophical tradition centered on the idea of democracy and experience. And so part of the beauty of the early America was the wild wilderness, right, that allowed us to 
invent all kinds of things. And so pragmatism seeks that spirit. And so at the core is the side of experimentalism that we try things, okay. we see how they work intellectually, not merely just practically, you know, in the general sense of word pragmatism, but in the sense of intellectually. And then if that doesn't work, you know, try something new. Um, that science models for us that technique of experimentation, verification, falsification. Um, and so I see my time in this position as an experiment of that sort. Not just it, will it actually produce practically these consequences, but can higher education itself actually have such administrators now? Or has it become too corporate, too regulated, so that universities do things even if none of the faculty want it or not, because there's some law out there or some regulation, you know, could we actually determine uh, the future of the university? And are you still agnostic about that? Or are you leaning little, one way or the other? Okay. A little. I have the ability to pull it off, but I think people will say in that case, oh, that's just Brad. He's already quirky. And look at him. He's just an old timey guy. He's got his, his old values from the yeah, so they're willing to put rural up rural world. Okay. But would he likes guns? Yeah. Could that be <laughs> in higher education? Okay. Right. Um, I've seen people, I'm not talking about anyone current, but we had a interim dean once who I knew was part of our faculty. We had fought similar battles with each other on the same side. As interim dean made 180 opposite decisions and said, oh, well, if I were so faculty, I would have judged it differently. Oh, so in and other words, I worry position changed them. And I worry about that. And so one of the things I see yeah. my task being is, no, it's still going to be me. And if there's any moment where I'm not being me, I need to quit. Um, wow. And do luckily, dean, do deans typically have that many books in their office? Well, luckily mine dean. has a lot of books, but um, I don't know. I don't. Rem I haven't been in many deans' offices, but I've been in a few, and I don't remember that many books typically. Some are designed more functionally, to be fair. Uh, but I still see myself primarily as a scholar. I'm still writing, still trying to publish things um, and whatnot. So I am still need my tools. What do you do to keep stay calm? Does it help you stay calm? I mean, does this give you anxiety doing this, this work? So, to me, it sounds like it's just problems, constant problems. Sometimes. How, how do you look at it? I don't mind the problems part because I can just say, oh, well, that's part of the junk of running, you know, such a multi-parted operation like a university but i don't mind that part i only get nervous when i'm doing procedures that directly affect faculty and their futures so i get nervous about making sure people's work is being compensated that merit correctly reflects the work people have done that people are getting raises that actually help them fight inflation. I get nervous <laughs> about the procedures 
where someone could lose a job or someone could uh, decide that they don't like working here with their students. So I get nervous about those things, but I was all, I've always been nervous about those things. That's not different as an uh, administrator. In terms of keeping calm, reading, of to course. Me that sounds like you're an idealist, Brad. I know. I'm often accused of being one. Um, piano, for me, is the one of the things that calms, in part because music can always reflect your emotional state. So, And you're good you know, enough at it that you can do that for yourself? Yeah. If you're angry, there's ample, wonderful, great pieces of piano literature that are angry. Um, <laughs> when you need to calm down, there are pieces that can do that for you, too. There are pieces that are very fingery. Is it How long like did it a, take you to get to that skill level? Oh, I've been taking piano for 15 years wow. formally. And I've played 10 years informally. So as an adult? Yeah. Oh, All cool. of my classical That's education really cool. has been as an adult. I did church piano, as we would call it, uh, prior to that. You learned piano as an adult. That's yeah. really cool. Because it's one of the things I wanted to learn that, as a child. It's just we I've always thought of it like ballet. I mean, if you're yeah. if you don't start really young, you're pretty much screwed. But you're oh, different. Yeah. yeah. No, that's not true. Okay. Um, in this sense, I will never be a concert pianist. I did start too late for that. There are pieces of piano depends literature on, I will on the never concert, be Brad. able to play. <laughs> Could be in your backyard. <laughs> true. <laughs> but I'm not playing Carnegie Hall. Move it that way. Right. Okay. So okay. it's like that. Yeah. Music's nice because at any level, as long as you're making music you enjoy, it can be pleasant. And so everyone can study music as an adult. Um, I wanted to learn as a child. Right it's just we couldn't have afforded piano lessons. We didn't know anyone who would teach piano. How much do they cost? Well, a good piano, like an upright mm -hmm. piano, would be like $7,000 in today's money. It would be less than when I was a kid, but we didn't have that. It, that wouldn't have been the kind of money my parents would have been able to spend on. What was your initial layout for these piano lessons that you, you, you were like, okay, I'm going to learn piano. I got to yeah. buy a piano. I got to hire somebody. Yeah. What was your layout for that in terms of costs? Well, grand piano. You got a grand, you got a grand piano. No, no I do not. Okay. Uh, upright piano. Um, I paid seven, like 7,500 and made wow. payments, you know, for like five years. Um, my piano teacher here in LA is a Juilliard trained pianist. And so lessons started at $70. They're now like $80, but that's inflation for you. Um, every week. When you say every week, you mean once a week? I play, uh, I take a lesson once every week. Once a week. How long is the lesson? One hour. Okay. And then you and, just practice until the next week? Yeah. And of course, the lesson is more about how to practice. And so oh, I'm working on this. Oh, how cool. do you practice? Oh, interesting. And then your teacher gives you. That's um, very helpful. The technique exercises and things to help you do that. How to how practice. To, to, to do that. And I'm now at a level where there's also a lot of, you know, analysis of wow. form and making sure I don't, you know, sprain my wrist. And was that, like that really important to you to get the Juilliard trained? Were you like, I'm getting that's the Juilliard. Not, that wasn't 
a just part happened of it. to be that way. It just so happened to be that one of the nice things about being in Los Angeles is yeah. that you can have compared to having grown up in um, rural Kentucky, right? Is you just have access to things. Yeah, there's a lot of performance. I never had. Yeah, that's true. And so when I became a professor here in LA. Did you know that you wanted to move to LA when you no, were at Memphis? It was okay. where the job was. Okay. Um, and so I came so out. You're not like, oh, I'm going to LA. I can't wait to go to LA and just run into Brad and Pitt. Over the idea. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, I would have been perfectly fine going back to Georgetown College and being a professor there um, in terms of being a professor. It turned out to be in LA. LA gave me the opportunity to connect more with different people. And so when I became a professor, instead of buying like a new car, I just kept my old beat up grad student car. Um, well, yeah, you had to spend 7,500 bucks on a piano. piano right. That's what most people yeah. would spend on a car. But to be fair, I mean, you're a lover of books too, you know, and people are always like, why do you not drive a nice car? Because I buy books. I, I yep. have to take piano lessons, you know, stuff like that. You can see, you know, where the priorities lie. I don't have That's fancy true. clothes. I don't drive a nice car. I just have a lot of books. Yeah. Well, um, Brad, how are you doing on time? I know we've gone over what you've said. Yeah, um, I think cut it out. We're approaching an end. Okay. Well, uh, you've definitely given us a lot to think about, and we've enjoyed getting to know you very, very much. Brad. Yeah. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, and to reflect on, time on us. reflect on how wonderful, you know, when I tell stories about the way I grew up, I always, this always comes to mind. I guess I'll say this is my ending. Just kind of, we live in an America that always thinks that the people who live in the rural world are just some group of animals. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, you know, but what a tender place I grew up in and it had real community and people that were willing to invest in me upon seeing where my passions were. And I had a wonderful upbringing and I always try to remind people as our culture becomes more and more urban. So even your rural parts of the United States are now urban life yeah um let's not lose some of that let's try to stay agrarian uh always know where our food comes from um have an appreciation for neighbors yeah and actually depend on them wow um, a concept those ideas exist in small town america mm-hmm. and also, there's also a lot of gossip but there's gossip in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. It's just in print. It's just in print. Yeah. But it's like. Well, I can see that attitude of this ending of the reflection on rural America. I see it in the way you take your current job seriously. Like you're you're bringing that like, hey. This is almost like a neighborhood. The The university and we need to cycle in people that to some of these to try to get rid of well we need to cycle in people in some of these administrative roles to to fight this administrative bloat right yeah it's very um small town 
It is, but I was about to say, indeed, small town where everyone gets a turn being the night watchman. Yeah, it's um, cool. In a volunteer fire department. Sometimes we, we've got to like how the Navy is. That's exactly yeah. how the Navy thinks about things. Like we had to stand watch when I was a kid, and I never under you know you don't understand it as a, when you're going through boot camp you have to stand watch. When you're in training in school, when I was uh, in school in my training, they made you stand watch. Then you're not on a ship. Well, they wanted to train you. This is where we have to look out for each other. There's always somebody awake. And there's usually always two people awake. Actually, that's how it yeah. works in the Navy. And you, everybody has to cycle through that role so that everybody knows the bigger picture mm-hmm. of because you see things at night that you nobody else sees and you'd never even think about that, like where the fire escapes are and, yeah. and whether that door is locked and um, just there's all sorts of things that you never think about. And it's even more important on a ship, actually. Yeah. But but yeah, that's how you that's that, that's what I hear you saying. Yeah. And the good news is you didn't have to pay for another night watchman. Right. That's true, too. And that's, right. that's what I'm interested in seeing in higher education. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Brad Elliott Stone. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.